listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. So we spent a fair amount of time last week talking about awakening, talking about Satori, talking about these experiences that show us a certain grace that come from our natural state. Nothing is added. It's when stillness of our body and stillness of our mind create literally like a resonance that just bursts and we have this opening. And it's different than, than like a, 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 a drug-induced awareness or, uh, or, or some state of consciousness that's brought about through you know, some really cool type of medication or something like that because there really is nothing extra added stillness in the body meets a stillness of the mind and boom there's an experience the experience allows us to see something extra now it's still an experience okay it's still an experience and therefore it came from something but again it's a pointer it points us to what's beyond mind what's beyond time. And what often happens is when we are, our bodies and minds are kind of ripe for this, we've gone through kind of the, the blender, you know, the spiritual blender. We've just really been torn apart and uh, we're, you know, the, the, the rototiller of spirituality just chews right through us. And then what grows? What grows is this, is this opportunity for just kind of this burst. And the huge mistake that people can make is that, oh, well, I've had that, like I mentioned last week. I've had that, therefore, I must be awakened. And this is just not so. What it does is it points us in the direction that we must then walk. And we walk with total integrity. We've been invited to the party. How we literally behave at that party is what uh, either supports or tears apart our Buddhahood, the expression of our Buddhahood in this lifetime. And if you don't like the word Buddhahood, you could just say the expression of our awakened self. With that in us, which is truly infinite, truly infinite, spacious, totally loving, totally caring, totally wise, totally compassionate. And in uh, Jack Cornfield's book, After the Ecstasy, the Laundry, there's this stuff I really wanted to point out, make sure before we left um, this, this particular chapter, uh, chapter 8, that we could at least address it because I think it's so, so helpful. So if you have a book, you can, uh, you can uh, join along on page 110. I'm going to read a little bit here, so please don't get too bored. One of the 
excuse me, one of Buddhism's best known maps of awakening comes from the Theravada tradition of the elders of Southeast Asia. The elders map describes enlightenment as four progressive stages of, quote, noble understanding, unquote, each of which brings a new level of freedom. The initial stage is called entering the stream. Stream entry occurs when we have our first taste of the absolute freedom of enlightenment, a freedom of the heart beyond all the changing conditions of the world. Like Satori or Kensho, a profound awakening in Zen, stream entry brings a breathtaking change of understanding. In this first enlightenment, a person sees through the illusion of a separate self, releases identification with body and mind, and awakens to the timeless peace of nirvana. Through it, the direction of our life is forever changed, and we enter a stream that will carry us to greater freedom as inevitably as a swift flowing current carries a leaf to the sea. But even though we have seen the truth, the elders say, further purification remains necessary for us to transform our character and embody this new understanding in our life. Thus begins the journey from stream entry into the second stage, returning again. Through a deep process, often requiring, require, there, one more time, I'll get my face to work here, requiring many years, we discover and release the coarsest habits of grasping and aversion that recreate our fearful and limited sense of self. I'll stop here for two seconds. Because this, I think, is absolutely key. Returning again sometimes can give us the most trouble because we've had this experience of grace and then we can't figure out how to like knit it together in the world. There's this tendency for us, we come back from the monastery, so to speak, into the real world and suddenly all those old habits, all those old things are there shining just crazily at us. How do we then work past that? How do we work through that? Um, it's probably not much of a surprise what my response will be. Let's watch it. We have to watch that. This is when the real work begins, when the real climb happens. We've been given this gift, and now we must earn its blessing. So in returning again, it's really about kind of earning what we've been shown. We've been pointed in the right direction. We've had a glimpse of it, but to actually get there takes tremendous work, and it may show up as stillness in, in our lives. The third stage... The elders call, quote, non-returning, unquote. In this, we are irrevocably released from any remaining desire, grasping, anger, and fear, never more to return to their sway. The very few who progress to this third stage do so through a long process of abiding in profound calm and emptiness. When wisdom grows, the subtle movements of clinging in the heart are abandoned the moment they arise. Stage three here, non-returning can only come, can only come through stillness. Can only come through stillness. And maybe we have this stillness practice that doesn't look like other people's stillness practice, whatever, that's fine. You don't have to sit in the zendo. You don't have to sit full lotus. But stillness, without it being incorporated into our life, non-returning can't show up. It can't. It can't be there because there's no way for that in us which is 
always already present. There's no way for it to recognize the impulse, impulse of desire, of grasping, of aversion, unless there is stillness. This is hard work. <laughs> Finally comes the fourth and most extraordinary stage called, quote, great awakening, unquote, in which the last traces of subtle clinging, even to joy, freedom, and meditation itself fall away. Now, without the slightest identification with self, we are freed from the vestiges of pride, judgment, restlessness, and separation that veil pure being. You can't skip any of the steps, unfortunately. It'd be nice. It'd be nice if we could go, well, why don't I just, why don't I just skip the entering the stream part and then I don't know that I really need to return again and the whole non-returning thing is confusing, so why don't I just go to the Great Awakening? <laughs> I'll just do that. Yeah, it's a little shortcut, you know, because at that point um, I, I, can, I can release um, all identification with myself, pride, judgment, restlessness, separation, you know, and I can also let go of this meditation practice and this, uh, all this other stuff I'm not supposed to do. I can go back to... Um, you know, kicking my dog or something like that, and it's, it's okay because it's all it's all good, right? No, <laughs> it's not. Actually, in Great Awakening, we run into this real interesting situation. Actually, in any one of these stages, we run into this very interesting situation that we affectionately term as enlightenment retirement. There's no such thing. We don't get to a place, and then, all right, I'm done and then stay there. We continually, continually work this circuitous wheel. We just keep turning it. We just keep going. We keep practicing. We keep practicing. We keep opening. All right? The, uh, the line, um, I think it might be Ken Wilbur who said this. Uh, you're never totally enlightened just like you're never totally educated, you know? There's never a stopping point for our education, hopefully. Or is it uh, Ms. Rudin, whose wife said, uh, or, or, or whose lady friend said, my son is done with her study, his studies? My son is done with his studies? And then he said, no doubt God will send him more. What a great line. I mean, that, that's, that's the whole beauty of this, is that this is bottomless. It doesn't stop. It doesn't stop. And because it doesn't stop, a truly enlightened one, as the koan says, a truly enlightened one can fall into the well. No matter how advanced we might think we have kind of progressed along this path, even at stage four, this great awakening, no matter how much we feel just ensconced in this total bliss, we can fall. Practice is continual. And also the fall sometimes is what brings about the most grace. When we have, as St. John of the Cross says, this dark night of the soul, this depression after we've been pointed in the direction but we just don't think we can take it, do we have what it takes to actually go in that direction and we're fearful and we don't, am I with the right teacher? Am I with the right group? Am I, is this, am I even... 
is Buddhism right? Is Christianity right? Is Judaism right? Is Hinduism right? Is Islam, whatever. We take a breath. And instead of attaching to the doubt, we meet it, just like everything else, with total relaxation, without grasping for anything or avoiding anything. And the more we practice that, the greater our centration happens around stillness as opposed to the motion of ego. We're in the eye of the hurricane as opposed to the tumult and turmoil around the outside of that eye. So what I'd like to do is spawn some discussion by letting you guys chat for a moment or two, okay? And what you can do is you can either talk about the, what, what, what's in the book or what was discussed here, okay? But the trick is, like I mentioned last week, that you cannot use the personal pronoun I, the possessive pronoun mine, okay? You can't use the word me. So how do we talk without saying I, me, or mine? What this does, what this really forces is it forces us to communicate from this non-personal place instead of a totally personal place, okay? And it's uncomfortable, but just trust it, okay? Trust it. First place you can go if you really start struggling is um, there's a thought that keeps coming up that says, okay? There's a feeling that keeps coming up that says, you get it? And the reason why this is so powerful is because you can't open your mouth unless you are witnessing what's going on. It can't happen. You have to, you have to plug in to your experience. So your orientation is actually coming from enlightened mind, not from ego. If I is there, if me is there, if my is there, it's ego, I promise. Okay, you ready? Let's go to it, five minutes gang. Look him in the eye. Rene Dalmal says, you cannot stay on the summit forever. You have to come down again. One climbs and one sees, one descends and one sees no longer, but one has seen. There is an art of conducting oneself by the memory of what one saw higher up. When one no longer sees, one can still at least know. So where did you land? Was it difficult trying to communicate with each other without using the I or me? Yeah? Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah, I think uh, one of the, I mean, like, I, like I've said before, Krishnamurti touched thousands of lives and helped open minds just around the world and so forth. Uh, I think that was one of the ways that he, just a, a pedagogical technique, in, in other words, a teaching technique, when he did not use the I, what that did is it created a reference in his audience of where the hell is he going with this? 
Huh? What? Oh. Right? So, as he is then speaking, this speaker says, there again, he's referring to himself in the third person, right? In the impersonal way. Well, the, the great trouble with all this is that Krishnamurti had some pretty significant problems when push came to shove in personal relationships and ethical situations and all sorts of other stuff. Uh, and so, as gifted as he was as a teacher, we still see that there's no enlightenment retirement. Again, this, is, this practice does not stop. And uh, so having an ethical framework with which we can then, you know, bolster or, or, or you know, bolster and support our practice becomes absolutely critical. It's absolutely critical that we look at those just simple rules of not killing, not lying, not stealing, not misusing our sexuality, all right? Not abusing drugs or alcohol or any substance, not abusing dharma, not abusing, you know, right? We, we don't, we, we just tr do our best to live very intimately with those rules, okay? So that they guide us, they help keep us on the path in the direction that the teaching, the teacher, and the group keeps keeps offering. This is how Buddha Dharma Sangha works. You know, it's where we just keep let that help create this this an ethical framework, so that when we get to the top of the mountain, and we see this amazing, we see from this amazing perspective that diminishes in many really unique and beautiful ways all the problems that we have thought were so huge. We come down and we meet all of those problems and everything with a new sense of them. But if we're not careful and we try to stay up there, the problems become so meaningless that then if there is no, if there is no truth, or if there's no right or wrong, then everything is okay, right? No. Everything's not okay because we still live in this world with others. And so the work really is about that one word with. That one word with. It creates this, it, it creates this, this merger. One with the all. One with the all. There is an at-one-ment, atonement in honor of Yom Kippur. There's this atonement of living. We become at one meant, and there is an at one mint in our life, an atonement, and a wholeness that is generated and then supported by that. At least that's what this speaker says. <laughs> Got one more, one more question, anybody? One more comment? I'm not, I'm not real clear where you're going, but the Dalai Lama kind of compassion, as we incorporate that, in other words, into our day-to-day, -day, what happens? I guess a sort of, how does it come to be? How does that kind of compassion begin to arise in us? It's a rather spontaneous and natural expression of any one of us who has not only seen from the mountaintop, but begins to know it. 
when we, when we bring that awakening in to our life, the compassion takes on an entirely different form of expression. It's no longer even touched by any kind of clinging. In other words, ego is not involved in the mix. So it takes that experience to really fully... Does it take that experience to really fully be there? Well, I think there's a great debate. I think there's a great debate going on. I think that experience is really necessary, ultimately, to be able to teach this stuff, to be able to get in there with others and so forth. You have to be able to taste chocolate in order to know what a chocolatier is talking about. Otherwise, it's just an abstract intellectual thing, right? But every one of us can taste the chocolate with enough practice and so forth, every one of us will have these openings. Rather, we'll begin to notice them, okay? Maybe they'll just be little. Maybe they'll be devastating. It doesn't necessarily have to be a huge thing. But what happens is, miraculously, compassionate activity that comes from a full heart and a full mind primes us for that great accident to happen, that great slip. Right? So, so while, I mean, on the one hand, compassion is a natural expression of that type of, of experience, so too is that experience a natural outcropping of one who is fully living with total compassion in their heart and mind. So they meet together, right? Yeah? Thanks so much for coming tonight. Appreciate it. Thank you. By the way, um, just so you know, we uh, we need to get uh, as best we can. We need to try to fill our slots at uh, Mount Madonna. So if you're on the fence, get off the fence. Come join us.